0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. It's Team Panel Beater, myself, with Dr Dilemma in the studio and Joining us via Skype this fine Sunday morning, we've got Dr. Sharma and uh, Dr. Neo. Good morning to you all.
1: Good morning to you.
0: Good morning. Where are you, Dr. Sharma? Where are you, Dr. Neo? Yeah, Why
1: explain you, yourself. Remember, uh, Why aren't you here? A, nursing a hip uh, that is on the path to recovery now that we have a diagnosis. Uh-huh. So, part of the treatment plan is to. Drive and sit for as little as possible, and uh, which has been yeah, challenging. But yep. here I am re-accommodating my life.
0: Are you, are you? Have you got a standing desk?
1: I do not have standing desk. I just get up really often.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> something I probably can't do very practically if I'm driving to the studio or in the studio.
0: So, uh, Doctor Neo, are you somewhere glamorous?
2: I am. I'm, I'm actually down at the beach uh, with um, some loved ones and perhaps the rest of Melbourne. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it this busy. It seems like everyone is just taking the opportunity to enjoy the the late September uh, global warming burst of sun. Oh god! Um, (laughs) And it's been glorious. It's been beautiful.
0: By all reports, by this you know, by the end of summer, whenever that eventuates, um, we'll be exhausted by the heat. By all the forecasts. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be horrific. Breakout
3: That's all right. We'll enjoy, we'll
0: enjoy it while we can. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, Dr Dilemma, lovely to see you in the studio.
3: Lovely to be in the studio. Yeah. Um, I'm it... impressed all four of us made it at 10am. <laughs> was... I was worried there for a moment.
0: <laughs> Dear listener, it <laughs> yeah. was a little bit uh, touch and go there just <laughs> before we got underway, but we're all here. Um, I'm hoping you're all well and good. You um, uh, get caught up in the, um, I gather there was a, Sports ball event yesterday.
3: I heard about that. I wouldn't have known. I was in the four walls of the hospital yesterday. But no, I did. um, um, I'm not a footy person, but did celebrate the. You know, Melbourne. It was a great vibe in Melbourne yesterday. Yeah, it was. Lots of Collingwood um, friends and family supporters. So yeah, it was. Yeah. And a great day for it as well, and a great game. You know, neck and neck to right, right to the end. Are you a footy person?
1: (laughs)
0: I I am, unless Collingwood's involved. Oh, okay. Oh, well, sorry <laughs> to hear that,
3: Then <laughs>
0: I think we just lost a lot of listeners, perhaps. I didn't mean right. that. Dr Sharma, did you caught up in it?
1: Uh, a little bit, in a couple of ways. So, we were broadcasting for ABC earlier in the day, so we went down to the G and, gosh, just a lovely, lovely atmosphere. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this, though. As a non-football follower, non-fan, One of the best ways you can experience um, uh, the grand final is just on social media, on Twitter. I mean, you get to just experience people's inner thoughts, thousands of them, (laughs) you know, at a time. It is absolutely fascinating. What trends did you see emerging on that front? I've heard a lot of, let's just, you know, nuanced and, let's just say, nuanced commentary from fans.
0: Did you pick any particular discourse trends?
1: Well, there must be said the umpiring apparently, and uh, whether there was an advantage to be paid or not. I don't understand any of the words I've just said. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> I could take a conversation today, I could.
0: Uh Yeah. Did you have a horse in the race, Doctor Now? No, no. I'm a a long suffering Tigers fan. Ah, um, that's that's me. Yeah.
2: yeah. So we. Um, it was nice to watch a, a decent game of footy though, and not have any kind of emotional um, <laughs> yeah. care about who wins or who loses. It was just a nice game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, went down to the line, wasn't a blowout. Yeah. Um, they got over 100,000 people at the G. Yeah. It was
0: good. And we got a public holiday on Friday. So what can, what, you know. We got a
2: public holiday Friday. and I got to, got, to go, got to go down to the beach instead of being at work, um, like, Dr. Dilemma. Dr. Dilemma. Um, Dr. Dilemma, did you, uh, did you ask all the patients to not have any emergencies during the three hours <laughs> of the game and, <laughs> and sit down with your feet up?
3: Um, look, yeah, unfortunately I don't think it works just like that. But, um, no, it was, a, it was a pretty good shift. I think lots of people um, out and about elsewhere outside of the hospital uh keeping busy.
0: <laughs> hey, guys, time is uh, time's flying. We've got a, a, a great show coming up. Uh, Dr. Dilemma, you've got a guest uh, sorted out for us. Who have we got?
3: We have a fantastic first guest who's uh, going to join us in the studio very soon. Uh, it's Dr. Vas Stafropos, um, who's a, an academic from RMIT University. He's going to be talking to us about internet gaming addiction. It's um, yeah, a really interesting uh, topic and uh, excited to have that chat up very soon.
0: I'm really looking forward to that. I'm not a gamer. But I still know I bump into a lot. Of, like the media reports, quite quite often, um, letting us know that there's something going on here, isn't there?
3: For sure, and I'm sure um, our guest will be able to yeah. unpack um, what exactly it. is going on yeah. and, um, yeah, what we can do about it. So um, I mean, I'm interested
2: because those reports have been going around for about 20 years. So I am um, I'm intrigued by this.
0: Yeah, what's changed. Yeah, what has changed over time and as technology gets more sophisticated and more uh, embedded in our daily life, I guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dr Neo, you've invited somebody in.
2: Yeah, I, um, I think we're gonna be very lucky to be joined by uh, Abe ropatini who is a um, executive director of the Population Health at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization. And he's going to be talking to us about a little something that I'm sure no one has ever heard of, uh, the referendum <laughs> coming up in uh, two short weeks. And he's going to be giving us a bit of um, the, the medical side of the referendum, what it means for our Indigenous um, population and you know why exactly it is a health issue. Um, and why should we as you know, medical professionals
0: care about mm. it? It's well documented that the health span and lifespan of Indigenous Australians falls well behind the rest of uh, Australia's population. So, really keen to understand uh, how the dots can be joined between something like uh, constitutional change and the voice to Parliament can make a difference to um, to health uh, outcomes for for Indigenous Australians. Lots to talk about there.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about R, or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the R website at rrr.org.au. We are very, very privileged to have in the studio this morning, Dr. Vass Stavropoulos, who is an academic and a clinical psychologist from RMIT University, whose area of research interest is in cyber psychology and um, internet gaming. And he's particularly interested in the opportunities that gaming provides to be really harnessed as a power for for um, for good um, so welcome and thank you for coming into the studio this morning Bas.
4: Thank you so much for inviting me Dr dilemma <laughs> and um, yeah good morning everyone Dr. Neo and Dr Sama. very nice meeting you <laughs>
3: So, uh, it's particularly timely that um, VAS is joining us in the studio today, we're given we're now on day two of Melbourne's International Games Week, which kicked off yesterday and will run through till next weekend, um, October 8th. So, VAS, first of all, can you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself and your career journey and how you um, came to be in the area of research that you're working in these days?
4: Excellent. I think it's a, it's a great question to start um, So obviously, as many academics, I'm motivated by my own drives. I'm a gamer myself, uh, which means I love games. Um, And at some point, being a clinical psych, I engaged with disordered gamers and how to help them. And on that path, I realized that the same things that um, may make um, games absorbing in a disordered manner can also be used as opportunities for mental health. And given the fact that we live in a city which has 30% of the national production of uh, games in Australia, um, we are in a country which has over 30 game development courses with very motivated and creative um, future game developers. Um, The whole idea behind my research is how we can um, embrace the opportunities that games are offering us in terms of VR treatment, assessment, um, through the user avatar bond, and maybe using algorithms, which is what we've been doing in my research group, um, to translate one's gaming behaviour into health and mental health information.
3: Mm, fantastic. What a really, really fascinating area to, to work within. And I imagine a rapidly evolving and changing industry with the growth of, as you say, Melbourne being a real um, thriving creative industry uh, space for new d- game development. And with the new AI that's um, you know embedded into all of our lives in ways now, it must be a really fascinating um, area to work within. But can you paint a picture of um, who who are gamers? Is there a typical gamer, or is is that a, a silly a silly question because um, it can't be stereotyped to a type of person? Well, what do we know about who plays games? Okay,
4: that's that's a very, that's another great question actually, um, because it breaks stereotypes. Um, so what we do know from the Digital Australia report, twenty twenty two, is that is that approximately seventy percent of Australians are involved with gaming in some form or frequency.
3: Did you say one seven or seven zero?
4: Seven zero. My apologies. Wow!
3: Wow! That's a huge percentage.
4: You've been very kind with me. So it's seventy percent of us are involved with gaming in some form or frequency. Um, about three percent or four percent. Uh, tend to be excessive gamers. And when it comes to who is a gamer, um, the profile is changing rapidly. So until now, we used to think that they are digital natives, which means people who have been exposed to new technologies and gaming before their adulthood. But this has been also changing rapidly because we have digital immigrants, people who have been exposed to new media or gaming, digital gaming later in life, um, also being significantly engaged. So the stereotypical profile of a, a male uh, between 24 and 38 being a gamer has been changing. We now have almost equal proportion of males and females and a higher age range.
1: But it's it's incredible, isn't it, how powerful so the, the stereotype of gaming has been versus the reality. And a lot of things we wouldn't technically, I suppose, call gaming – uh, in the classic sense, really is. I'm wondering though if you can speak a bit more to the mental health uh, aspects of things. That, that there are, you know, kind of benefits of this. and you know, the three or four percent, as you're saying, are really kind of pathological, I suppose. Can, can you tell us a bit more about some of the, what the concrete benefits are and who it is who derives these benefits?
4: Okay, that's that's a very good point actually, because it it changes the perspective that people have uh, mainstream the mainstream perspective that people have around gaming. So we have what we call serious games or games for health, um, which are games developed uh, either for mental health or health uh, assessment or intervention. And we know, I mean, there's evidence, concrete evidence, solid evidence, that games can benefit individuals through four channels. The first is empathy. So I, I let's say I play with an avatar uh, that has or suffers from a mental health issue, and I start developing empathy towards people who suffer from this mental health issue. Um, a characteristic example, Senuous Hell Bubble from Ninja Theory, where they have an avatar um, who suffers from psychotic symptoms, and it has been shown that players actually start developing more insight in, into what illusions or hallucinations could be. And, and being able to more relate, and not marginalize um, such individuals, then we have another game. I'm just thinking of brainstorming of games um, developed in Singapore by Nanyang University, where they had Indian Singaporeans playing with uh, avatars who had Chinese uh, appearance and accent, <laughs> and the assessment. The, and the evidence suggested that they, they discrimination patterns. Uh, reduced, and they, you know, it's like empathizing more. So that's one channel. The second has to do with what we call um, proteus effect. So what is proteus effect? If I play uh, a game that involves an avatar, which means a figure of representation of myself, the way I customize it in the world of the game, it has been shown that when the avatar has prosocial features, these features can affect the way I think, the way I feel and the way I behave towards others. It refers to a minority of gamers but it exists, it's evidence-based and and we know that we can use it for mental health purposes. Um, So let's say developing more pro-social behaviors or um, using games for behavioral activation in depression like Depression Quest which which was another serious game they developed. Um, And the, the, the two other channels have to do with what we call online flow, which is building up um, on game challenges related to real-life health tasks, such as I play in a mixed reality game and one of my goals in the game is to be more active in real life and the, 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 blend, the blend of the game between real and virtual uh, motivates me to actually be healthier and be better in my real life. Um, and the, the fourth avenue has to do with games delivered on virtual reality platforms, where the finding is actually very, very interesting. Those who are more vulnerable or sensitive don't benefit from the sense of competing with others, but when they participate in the same group, so if, let's say, we all suffer from depression or we all feel anxious, and all four of us are in the same group and we have to address the same tasks, Um, the ones who progress in in the game or in the virtual reality platform become role models for others and, and, and a sense of connection and what we call sense of virtual community is developing. So we have great opportunities there. And maybe the greatest in terms of assessment is translating the user avatar bond into health and mental health information, which is what my group has been doing. So what we are doing is we are assessing how people relate with their avatars in the worlds of the game And then we use supervised algorithms to be trained on a part of the data to make predictions about another part of the data. So we now can actually predict if we know how one relates with their avatar, whether they are at risk for depression, anxiety, how they sleep, because we have been assessing them with Fitbits, actigraphy trackers, if they sleep less than four hours or more, just by knowing that. Why is that important from a mental health perspective? It's mediated assessment. People have often, or a proportion of sufferers, have issues in first identifying that they are suffering. It's this denial stage of mental health symptoms. And, and secondly, talking about it when they realize it. And when you embrace this these op- gamified opportunities for assessment, you can actually thrive. And the reason we are pursuing this line of research in this city is because it's an amazing hub. In terms of games creativity, not only are MIT, but other universities, and this city full, is full of ideas. I'm sorry for talking too much.
0: No, no, no please uh, do. No, yeah. <laughs> I was just yes. noticing the, um, the, the the hand on the desk there was coming yeah. through on the microphone. Um, <laughs> it's, be, be, being, <laughs> the passion is coming
4: <laughs> yeah, through. Yeah, the so passion. He's hitting the wall. Yeah. I think it's the, it's, allow me to use a, an inappropriate word, it's my wogginess because we are, <laughs> oh. we are expressive and we are the way we no, are. No, no, it's so great, it's, like,
0: it's great. That's really fascinating. It's,
4: it's the passion for the topic. We love it.
2: Um, I, I am so pleasantly surprised by this this conversation in that, you know, the the kind of discussion around gaming as I was growing up was, oh, it's harmful. It fries kids' brains. It's um, it's not doing anything positive. Um, it you know it makes violent behaviour. I I guess my question is just have. Games actively being changed, or were they always um, always designed in a way that had these kind of positive uh, features to them that just were going under-recognized previously?
4: I'm going to be a little bit politically incorrect, eh? and this is not a research-evidenced-based uh, answer. It's my own experience. Uh, so... Games have engaging or absorbing features. What we call telepresence, the sense of being there in the virtual world, being absorbed by the virtual context, what we call online flow, being absorbed or immersed but by what you do online, your game activity, and then the user avatar bond, which is how I bond with this figure and what this figure means about me and is it my ideal self to an extent? Does it compensate for things that I don't have in real life? Does it... Uh, Does it allow me to express um, inappropriate behaviors, being more promiscuous or more violent or whatever? Uh, And then we have algorithms amplifying these characteristics either to the benefit of the gamers, I would dare to say, or to the detriment of the gamers. So the same game ingredients, it's it's like using the same game ingredients for good and for bad. The reason I'm going to reiterate that that we are pursuing this optimistic line of research when it comes to gaming, because we've worked as a group in relation to gaming disorder, is because um, we need to realize that we live in a country that produces games. People who are trained to become game developers are not trained to make other people addicted. They want to benefit others. And actually in RMIT, the game design course, students are very driven for games for health. It's about redirecting the industry directing the industry to the benefit of the public. And I think this is what the Australian state should be doing and they've been trying to do through the Melbourne International Gaming Week. We have huge, inter- huge, huge financial benefits from the gaming industry in this country, uh, and we can also have huge health benefits if we direct it the right way. I would also like to, to remind to those of you who might not be aware that last year our federal government introduced the uh, game tax offset Thirty percent of tax deduction for gaming companies just to encourage positive game development, and I think we have great opportunities. Um, in the US, they have already developed a game for ADHD oh, to wow. increase, so which is prescribed actually. <laughs> <laughs> to inc- I, I'm not going to mention the name of the game, but we are trying to do something similar here, which increases attention for people who have attention inattention deficit, inattention or attention deficits. Um, so. The whole idea behind it is we have the ingredients here in this city and in this country to do something extremely positive and to benefit not only financially, but health-wise. I'm sorry for talking too much again. No, you
1: not. But it's great, and it's... it's- fascinating to hear you talk about gaming in this incredibly positive light that is also evidence-based but you know i am i'm curious because something did surprise me when you mentioned that 70 percent number which is the the, the the number of people who potentially game and yet i suppose a lot of us when it comes to discussion of gaming in this big way coming to this kind of defensive posture because there is this stigma around gaming for something that 70 percent of people do where is this stigma coming from? Is this just this kind of historical hangover? Are there specific parts of the population who are still not quite getting it and seeing that it can be, you know, at worst kind of neutral or just amplify what you've got or, you know, or and best be amazing? Who's providing that resistance, that, that stigma that we still experience?
4: I think it's the same as with alcohol or gambling. If you think about it, we all drink alcohol in a social way um, and it doesn't affect us negatively. Actually, if, I mean, Saturday night was last night. Those of us who might have been out might have had one or two glasses and then, you know, it's a positive thing, but it's 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 the excess that makes things negative. So when we think of alcohol, do we th- really think of it as something positive or negative? What's the first thought? I think it's it's this thing, it's this tendency that we have when it comes to negative connotations to emphasize the negative part because it's more concerning. And the same with gambling. I mean, all of us gamble a little bit, and some of us prosocially some of us less it's, but the excessive part is that actually stigmatizes the activity and what the gamers community have been saying is mm-hmm. that hey guys, wake up you know it's four percent mm-hmm. those who are suffering, but ninety six percent are you know are getting entertainment out of it, we connect out of it, we meet um to play games, Dungeons and dragons we have fun mm-hmm. and we develop. New ways of relating to others and of relating to our own self, why should that be penalized? Why should we pathologize normal behaviors and I think they are right to be honest and it's it's our duty as as academics to provide the evidence about the fine line between use and abuse or adaptive or maladaptive use and I think it's also responsibility of, of politicians and those who the lawmakers to To emphasize on how to protect the community from the risks, but at the same time help the community embrace the benefits, which is equally important. Um, I hope I make sense.
3: That does make sense. Absolutely, it's um, you've really opened my mind to a a whole other perspective as a non, um, I'm in the minority in the thirty percent, to see how how the. The benefits can really be harnessed for for health. I'm really, really fascinated by the idea of a prescription video game to help treat um, ADHD. Um, be fascinating. Is that something that you've seen in Australia, or is that um, overseas and hasn't yet made its made its way here into into routine practice? It,
4: it 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 currently this specific game applies mostly in the US, but yes, in Australia we have been amazing in producing games for mental health. Depression Quest 10 years ago was produced to help people empathize with depression symptoms and encourage behavioral activation. And it had been effective. There was a um, paper on Lancet about that. Then we have a lot of training games. I'm not sure if you are aware of um, how we call it, the burn center. So it's about um, helping um, uh, nurses to to get uh, more aware of the steps around triaging uh, people who have suffered, you know, bushfire bushfire effects and what do you do first, second, next. And it's this VR simulation process. And we have been using a lot in Australia VR games about anxiety and specific phobias. So you do it in virtual reality and then it's effective. And it, it actually applies for a proportion of sufferers uh, significantly because they feel more comfortable. They're not exposed. They you know it's they're not judged. Um, so the question be I mean, I would answer your question with another question. It's not whether games can be effective or can be detrimental. It's for whom Mm -hmm. they can be more effective and for whom they might be a risk. Hmm.
0: Look, we're fast running out of time, but it is fascinating. Just before we um, uh, wrap up, I wonder, does um, the format make a difference or the... the The mode of engagement like does it matter if it's desktop um large tv smart smart tv mobile phone is there a distinction to be made in the potential benefits in how these are consumed or used
4: what we what we call telepresence is the experience of the vr context so what we do know and this is very interesting is that um the higher the level of presence one's experiences, the sense of being there more than here, uh-huh. can maximise the benefits in serious games right. but can also maximise the risks mm. for addictive games. So it's like, as I said before, it's the same ingredients and how we use them to cook the recipe.
0: Right. Well, in the, on that basis, would you make any forecasts about uh, what virtual reality or meta-worlds and that kind of thing might mean for this?
4: Okay, yeah. So, we are at the beginning of the metaverse era, or the dawn of the metaverse era, according to some. This era is signified by what we call persistent online worlds where people participate via avatars concurrently. And it's augmented virtualities, not augmented realities, but augmented virtualities. It's something virtual which is augmented by real life features. And initially, there was the sense that it would, it would be huge and people would engage with it significantly. It hasn't happened. So what we do know is now that Metaverse will be there and will be overly engaging for a proportion of individuals. My, and we have, I'm not sure how many of you are on the Engage platform. Have you been there? So it's Mm -hmm. like you have real institutions like the White House or universities or game production companies or digital companies having stands and you are there with your avatar which you can customize and you can interact in real life, in, in real time and with real repercussions and this occurs. Um, So, yes, it it will be engaging for a proportion of the population. My sense is there will be opportunities there, and some have already been uh, making progress on that direction. In terms of training health practitioners, for example, we have two different virtual reality platforms for GPs and and nurses, (laughs) and we are using it for mental health, I'm not sure how big it might become, but I'm sure that some will definitely benefit from it and a smaller proportion, a minority might not.
3: Hmm. Wow, this is certainly a a watch this space... um Area of research, and I think we'll have to have Dr. Uh, Vast back on uh, in in the coming months to to get updates on on how his research is progressing. Um, we're running quickly out of time on today's show, so we might have to move along to our next segment shortly. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming in and um, opening our eyes and our worlds to the to the world of gaming, and um, um, a bit of a plug for the Melbourne International Games Week, which is running running this week to get involved and. Um, yeah, is, any final words before we have to move along?
4: Th- thank you, Dr. Dilemma, and thank you for promoting the Melbourne International Gaming Week. It's very important for all the game developers working in the industry um, in this country and the future game developers who are getting trained in our universities to feel that this their work is destigmatized, destigmatized and somehow the community can hear the other aspect hmm. and Fantastic. the benefits.
3: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
2: I'd like to welcome to the studio uh, Abe Robertini. Abe is a Maori man of Ngati, Kahu, Hong, Unu, and Ngati. Mani Hapoto Iwi with ancestral links to the Palawa mob from northeastern Tasmania. He has a background in medical anthropology and international development and has led projects across health, aged care, disability, and Aboriginal and social and emotional wellbeing. A passionate and vocal advocate for reimagining and decolonizing the health and wellbeing of Indigenous people. Abe takes a storytelling approach to centering the legitimacy and importance of culture, kinship and country in natives of health and wellbeing. Abe is the, direct, the Executive Director of Population Health at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. Welcome, Abe, and uh, sorry for my terrible Maori pronunciation.
5: No, thanks very much. Uh, you actually did pretty well, but um, it's long words, so for people at home, all they need to know is I'm an East Coast Maori from the North Island, um, and on the Australian side, my ancestral connections are into northeastern eastern Tasmania, um, the trawler mob down there.
2: Um, so... I think first, before we get into the the meat of the conversation, I'd just like to know a little bit about what Vacho actually is.
5: Yeah, sure. Vacho or the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation is the peak body for Aboriginal Health and Wellbeing in Victoria. Uh, Every state and territory has a peak body that represents uh, the voice of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living there uh, and the struggle to get access to equitable health outcomes, whether that's in community-controlled health settings or whether that's in hospitals and other mainstream settings of care. And so we are it for Victoria. We have 33 member organisations, and they're all um, primary health providers, but they provide a whole range of other Uh, services for their communities as well. It's really a 50-year-long um, experience of delivering services uh, for really anything that's going on in someone's life. So that could be housing. It could be that you have a family member with a disability or you've got an elder who's getting on in life and needs a little bit of help around the home. And um, it could also be that uh, you know, you're know uh, you battling cancer or whatever else. So um, our services across the state, and we cover the whole state, we're the largest employer collectively of Aboriginal people in Victoria. Uh, we will provide whatever services we can. Um, and at the at the moment, we're doing it on the smell of an oily rag, um, and so we're looking for ways to really strengthen um, how we advocate and to uh, and to have our unique models of care better understood by the people who have the power to change the way that things are funded, um, so that we are more backed in by appropriate, um, you know, ways of understanding what uh, what health services and social services uh, need to receive in the way of support from government to really be able to deliver services from the very beginning of life all the way through to the dreaming. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, a struggle at the moment, but um, we're really hoping that Uh, you know, through the current opportunity that we have with the referendum, is that we will be able to have a voice that that will be able to articulate our position on how best to support our communities uh, directly to the people who have the power to make the changes that need to happen.
2: What a fantastic healthcare model. I think that's just truly, you've done such an amazing job of kind of describing what holistic healthcare is and you know the the health model that we should all really be striving for, and the one that's kind of um, not been existent in many parts of our you know the Western health system ever since its origination. Um, I guess um, speaking about the referendum now. So I guess from your point of view, what is the voice, and why why do you, does your organisation consider it such an important um, referendum?
5: Uh, the Voice is an advisory group which will have the power to represent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives directly to the federal Parliament and to the bureaucracy that has the power to implement decisions made by the federal Parliament on the best ways to incorporate the perspectives of Aboriginal people and to ensure that the outcomes that come out of um, processes of changing the law or processes of, you know, improving the way that you know laws are implemented, um, actually reach the ground. And uh, the Voice will. Un- bring together regional and local voices as currently happens within the community-controlled sector nationally uh, to ensure that the best local place-based initiatives that are community-controlled, community-led um, and community-evaluated uh, are incorporated in the way that people are thinking and uh, and designing policies at a state and national level. Um, so it's really about saying that, you know, in particular within health and well-being, um, we have politicians who are currently sitting in Canberra who are really out of touch from our communities, and it's about putting them in touch uh, by insisting that they listen to the perspectives of the people who are representative of those communities from all across the country.
1: I will ask a you know, seemingly obvious question: Why is that important for health? For uh, for these representatives to, to hear kind of from the community. After all, that's not necessarily the model that I, I suppose applies to, to the rest of healthcare in Australia. You know, it's, It is kind of you know, fairly kind of top-down, I suppose. Why is that specifically important for healthcare?
5: It's critical for healthcare uh, and for a couple of reasons. So in the Aboriginal community-controlled sector, we don't actually talk about health um, in the same way that mainstream organisations talk about health, which is really just ensuring that you don't have disease. Um, so how we talk about it is, ensure, sure, ensuring that you don't have disease and that you have a high level of um, you know, ability to prevent disease in your own right and the right of your family, uh, but it's also about being connected to your community, being connected to your culture, uh, to your kinship, Um, to places of ancestral significance, um, to the country that you may live on or the country that you can trace yourself back to and to those forms of spirituality that you want to practice and that are important to you. So all of those... Dimensions of health and well-being uh, are what we seek to practice within the Aboriginal community-controlled sector because we're faced with a unique challenge, which is to restore something that was dispossessed and which was removed over the last 200 years. That's a unique challenge. You know, mainstream Australia is not having to restore all of those things, but in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, that's, that's what we're trying to do. So we have to come up with ways of articulating how we're approaching that challenge that are unique. And we need policymakers to understand that challenge Uh, as we articulated as well. It's important because part of doing that involves operating within communities that uh, have certain parameters sitting outside of them that can determine those health outcomes. So we know a lot about and we talk a lot about the social determinants of health. But there are also the cultural determinants of health as well, and that is whether, you know, if you take an Italian community, for example, um, I mean, you're just saturated in culture, right? It's it's a beautiful, beautiful culture. You're born into a family um, that immediately starts, um, you know, just saturating you in ritual and in your nonna's cooking and in, you know, um, making sure that the tomatoes are in the ground before cup day. That is what you do. It's your pattern of life every year, and... And you have elders in your community that make sure you all get together on a Sunday um, to, you know, share lunch together, to go to church together, whatever it is. How, how you want to practice your culture actually becomes an innate part of your well-being. Um, and that's, you know, critical. So there's cultural determinants as well, whether you can connect to that. And, and you know, Aboriginal communities have challenges and barriers with connecting to that because it was the thing that was removed. But there's also the political determinants of health, and that is whether you live in an atmosphere of safety and that is whether it's the way that people talk about you, right, and the way that people think about you and whether that Im- immediately makes you feel that you want to go to work today or that you want to send your kids to school today without fear and without worry. And so if you are living with that fear or with that worry because you you live in an unpredictable atmosphere where you're not sure what people are going to say to you about you and what people think about you, and that can have an incredible impact on your health. So, so we're talking about racism, right? So the voice to parliament is a critical, critical enabler for the, for the anti-racism that we need to see embedded into all policy settings at a, at a national level. That will have direct impacts on health because we see that racism is still you know, a large part of the stress, the highest, higher rates of stress that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Torres Strait Islander people are living with today.
0: I, and if... Oh, sorry. No, you go,
2: Nia. I guess, leading on from that, what kind of legislation would you you and your organisation like to see um, moving forward in the next kind of short to medium term to kind of help with these goals?
5: I think there are a number of things. So, in terms of legislation, it's, it's actually that we need overall reform of the health system. I mean, at the moment we've got, um, and I'm not just talking about for Aboriginal health services, I'm talking about we have a health service system that has become really commercialised and where services will only actually deliver services that they can send an invoice for um, and then they can bill for, and and the number of those um, things uh, that, you know, services will deliver uh, are uh, being reduced, you know, with, with each cycle of government. So... The result of that is that there are people who are just underserved and there's a huge level of unmet need across um, Australia for everybody, Um, but we know that that impacts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the most. So we'd like to see that and I think that a voice to Parliament would put forward why those outcomes would uniquely benefit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, But it's also important that you know, those perspectives around uh, the history of colonisation in this country and what that has created in terms of intergenerational trauma and the healing that is required is going to require funding that uniquely addresses those those challenges. Uh, so, you know, I think it is uh, possible to see that through legislation that is developed by listening to a voice uh, that's critical. But I also think that it flows on into the bureaucracy as well into you know, health departments in terms of how policy then gets implemented. Um, so a voice will, you know, ensure that, that things that are made or well, decisions that are made within the parliament actually then are handed to public servants and are then implemented in ways where they will actually make change on the ground. So a voice will be able to articulate how that should be done.
0: Hey, but I think um, a, a pointed question that will be on a lot of people's mind, um, and uh, including people who are really uh, in good faith wanting to support the voice, and but they want to understand um, the joining of the dots between what it is about the voice itself that increase these uh, positive um, outcomes that we're looking for. We've got a history of royal commissions, inquiries. There's been some really um, uh, significant episodes, Tanya Day, et cetera, et cetera, where a lot of information has come forward about the issues facing Indigenous Australia Um, and we're entirely frustrated that that hasn't made the changes that we want so what is it about the voice that's going to make the change?
5: It's a it's a really good question and I think you know the the the, there isn't a simple answer to it, but what we do know is that when you have uh, a clear articulation of what needs to happen, it's much harder for politicians to flip flop on what their commitments are, uh, and it's much easier for communities to hold politicians to account. It's then also much easier for bureau- for you know bureaucra bureaucrats um, or public <laughs> servants is perhaps an easy way to say it uh, for public servants to understand what the expectations are on them in terms of implementing policy so if you look at um so you mentioned Annie Tanya Day, for example. You, and, you know, if we look at the decriminalisation of public intoxication in Victoria and related if we look at the, um, the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system, we've seen huge leaps forward in terms of the involvement of Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal community-controlled um, voices within those processes. Granted, government still doesn't always listen to us and so we need to flog them from time to time to make sure that, you know, that accountability is there. But um, in the Royal Commission into the Mental Health System here, for example, um, Vacho coordinated the giving of evidence from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, ensured that that was a culturally safe process and that that was a process that people felt empowered to participate in, to tell their stories. We treated it not as just evidence-giving, but actually as part of the healing process in itself. Uh, And the result was that that Royal Commission has a specific recommendation, number 33, um, on Aboriginal social and emotional wellbeing, which has a whole range of transformative um, levers within which, you know, a well-organised implementation will transform outcomes in the state. So we had, prior to the, to the Royal Commission, four social and emotional wellbeing teams in uh, community-controlled services across the state. It was recommended that we increase that to 25, you know, and we're well on the way to doing that. So that, that persistent voice and that persistent um, putting forward of here are the solutions, here is what we are saying needs to, ha- to happen and here is the way that this needs to be implemented is really critical in Victoria. It will be critical nationally as well.
3: I had a question. Of course, we're speaking of the voice, but it's not just one voice, of course. It'll be an elected num- quite a number of voices. Do you- what's your understanding of how and who will be the voice?
5: So that's, a, that's also a really important question. And I think that a lot of people want those answers, right? They want the answers now. Um, there's an irony to that, which is that we can't predetermine what this looks like. Okay, so there needs to be a process where the community comes together and and internally says, what do we want this to look like? Okay, so at the moment we are talking about an in-principle change of incorporating uh, constitutional recognition into the birth certificate of modern Australia, and we're also talking about setting up an advisory group. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a straightforward, do we agree to that, yes or no, and I agree with that. Okay, the, the next question is how do we best represent the voices of local Aboriginal people at the national level, OK? And, and, you know, MOB down here in Victoria might have one view on that, and MOB in Western Australia might have another view on that. And so there needs to be a process, which has been committed to, of actually looking at how the mechanisms mm-hmm. will all come together. So what we know is that, at a minimum, uh, at a national level, there needs to be a mechanism for, across the country, looking at solutions that are working, there are so many solutions that are working here in Victoria at the moment which are constrained by a lack of funding or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, we need to feed that up to um, to the national level so that we can get increased funding into those um, those solutions. Wow.
2: Abe, hey, we're, we're very fast running out of time. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. I guess what it is um, for our listeners, how can they help support the referendum?
5: Vote yes. <laughs> tell your friends, tell your families Very. to vote yes. It's really simple. It's simple. Very simple. Yeah.
2: <laughs> simple, easy, vote yes. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Abe Robertini from Bachelor.
0: Well, we have reached time here on Radio Therapy. Big thanks to our um, guests of the morning. Big thanks to Dr Dilemma, Dr Sharma and Dr Neo. Hi.